0: Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Finnovate podcast. Joining me today, we have Manas Chala, CEO of London Politica. Manas is going to be joining us on stage at Finnovate Fall this year in New York. We had a great session with him at
1: Finnovate Spring. Uh, Manas, thank you so much for joining me today. Greg, thank you so much for having me. I love working with the Finnovate family, and I'm uh, excited about New York. Yeah, well, certainly we all learned a lot
0: from your session last spring in San Francisco. But before we jump into some of those pieces, can you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself and London Politica? Sure.
1: So I founded uh, and I now currently lead London Politica, uh, which is the world's largest geopolitical risk advisory for social impact. And when we first entered the space about three and a half years ago, Uh, There were very few political risk companies doing things on social impact. And so the first few clients we worked with were anything to do with charities, nonprofits, international organizations, really the kinds of organizations that work on the frontiers of uh, geopolitically risky markets, but often don't have the budgets to pay for the premium price tag, which existed in that sort of industry. Uh, And that led to some cool projects. We got to work uh, with the United Nations World Food Program in Afghanistan, helping them figure out the geopolitics of local instability uh, and helping them redesign more effective food programs after the United States pulled out. Uh, We got to work with the Red Cross uh, and we were their exclusive partner uh, in Ukraine, uh, helping them figure out how the war was evolving, both sort of in a macro long term scale, but also on the ground uh, day to day, week to week. I got to spend a few weeks in Poland and Ukraine last summer, and that was very informative. And then over time, we shifted uh, to a much more sort of commercial focus uh, and started providing that macro advice to all sorts of entities from uh, big banks, hedge funds, private equity. We do a lot of family offices. And of course, to fintech companies, uh, which, you know, often because they're so young and so fast moving geopolitical risk isn't high on their agenda. But as I try to point out in San Francisco and we'll try to do in New York, I think it really should be because I think not only are there a lot of risks, but plenty of opportunities for fintechs to look out for. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean,
0: certainly the background that you have is, is really interesting and very different from most of the guests who come on this podcast. I, I think it's really beneficial, though, for fintechs and for financial institutions to turn their lens towards this bigger picture, because obviously a lot of geopolitical events um, will have massive impact on the banking and, and the fintech space. And I think we are, and I think every industry is guilty of this to some extent, but I think the fintech industry in particular, we've got a bubble around ourselves. Um, and so sometimes there's a temptation to ignore some of those larger pieces that that are obviously going to have a major impact on the space. Now, I don't want you to give away too much about what you're going to be talking about in New York, but can you talk a little bit about some of the, the big geopolitical events that you're seeing unfold or that might unfold that you think might have a, a big impact on the banking and fintech spaces?
1: Sure. I mean, I think uh, these last five years, uh, in kind of the longer term, in the last year in particular, have proven that geopolitical risk is here and it's here to stay. Uh, You know, there used to be a time when geopolitical risk wasn't a mainstay at uh, conferences like these, but now it's really, really hard to ignore. Uh, The war in Ukraine has affected virtually every business and every industry in some way, shape or form or the other. But you're also seeing sort of more long-term trends. Uh, if you're seeing what's happening with the macroeconomic environment and this sort of inflation uh, that central banks all around the world are struggling to overcome, if you're looking at how deeply interconnected our supply chains are to one or one to three particular choke points in Taiwan, uh, where 90% of the world's most advanced semiconductors are made, and if you think about the kind of potential uh, of a Chinese invasion for of, of Taiwan which you know 10 years ago people didn't almost didn't think about now the best analysts I've seen rated at somewhere between 50 to 75 percent in the next three years uh when you think about all those things, it really makes you understand how fundamentally insecure fragile and unstable the geopolitical environment we're in uh and that obviously creates a lot of risk, but it also creates opportunities. one of the most interesting pieces of the puzzle I think for Fintechs to to keep track of is the, uh, evolving pattern of central bank-backed digital currencies. Now, effectively, every major central bank in the world is thinking of issuing a digital currency. But by far, uh, the country most ahead in this race is China. And they've already started trialing these currencies. They've rolled it out to about a quarter of their citizens, uh, which is, you know, sort of in the neighborhood of three to 500 million people. And this poses massive concerns, Uh, privacy concerns on one level, But uh, also concerns about uh, the ethics of an authoritarian government having access to how every individual spends their money on a day-to-day basis. And particularly as we see US-China relations intensify and heat up, uh, we see this bifurcation between the tech systems we have. We're developing two different systems simultaneously that don't talk to each other. There's different American tech companies and different Chinese tech companies. Uh, And I think a real concern is that that spreads to the bifurcation of financial systems systems of fintech systems, which certainly poses, again, both risks and opportunities for fintech. So those are just some of the things I would watch out for, but there's plenty more. Yeah, and certainly no
0: shortage of pieces that you could potentially have listed off there. But the ones you have picked were, I think, really, really good to focus on. Um, Now, one of the things that we were kind of talking about before we push record is, is the idea, obviously, you know, big geopolitical events can impact the fintech industry, but we're now kind of seeing that go the other way as well, where the fintech industry is now playing a role in the outcome of some of these big geopolitical events. Can you talk a little bit about how the fintech industry is able to influence some of these pieces that you've been talking about, not necessarily the exact examples that you just listed, but how it's able to kind of become increasingly a factor on this international stage?
1: Sure. I mean, we've seen this. This isn't a new story. We've seen this post 2007 seven eight when a lot of the surviving big financial institutions had immense government relations teams and had immense influence uh, within the agenda-setting process of policymaking for the years to come. And I think that slowly evolved into the same reality, uh, only more so for big tech companies. And if you look across the landscape of American tech companies, whether that's Google, Meta, uh, Microsoft or Apple, all of these have dedicated uh, government relations teams, but in certain cases, entire teams call digital diplomacy, speaking of Microsoft in particular, which has a permanent office and a permanent presence to uh, the UN, both New York and Geneva. And you might think that these tech companies are largely trying to influence the agenda on tech things, on AI, on regulation, uh, on the future of work. Uh, And while they are doing that, they're also moving into completely traditional areas of geopolitics. Uh, Microsoft, for instance, is the largest private donor to uh, the UN High Commission on Refugees uh, in one year. And so there's very clear agendas and priorities for tech companies that's less so the case with fintechs uh partly because we don't have fintechs yet the size of these sort of bigger tech companies but also because most fintechs haven't actually woken up to the reality of geopolitics being a sphere of influence that they can play an active role in uh and so largely while i think fintechs have been have made some important moves and there's some interesting examples at least in Europe of fintechs uh, influencing regulation at the EU at the kind of with domestic authorities on very particular things. I think it's uh, a very decisive time for fintech thought leaders to play a role in thinking about the future of money, the future of debt, the future of lending, and really try to influence governments and civil society uh, in accordance with that, whether that's on central banking and uh, central bank-backed digital currencies or on other spheres. So there's certainly immense opportunities, yeah. Yeah, I think we've kind of seen that as well, we, the
0: beginnings of it anyway. There have been these uh, moments where the fintech community, I think, has sort of had to step up or at least maybe seen an opportunity to step up in the wake of COVID. Obviously, with the PPP loans, there were a huge number of fintechs who were jumping in to help facilitate that process and make the the loan Application process uh, much more easy for the folks who are actually filling it out, um, tracking it, and we saw com- uh, different countries doing very different things. You know, I, I was I had the minister of of finance from Singapore on the show talking about how they were really quickly able to uh, through the fintech rails that they had built distribute stimulus money into various sectors of the economy in an extremely targeted way, um, which obviously is not something that I think the fintech industry would have said, we're, we're going to do this. But when faced with that challenge, they had the means to go out and do it. And so now I think the, the challenge is to say, okay, we built a system which is resilient enough to be able to handle problems as they come up. But can you think one step further? Can you start to anticipate the problems a little bit sooner? Can you start to think about how you might be able to influence the, the spheres beyond sort of crisis management mode? Um, and that was something you actually talked a little bit about uh, on stage at Spring as well. You know, you mentioned the concept, uh, not of a black swan, which I think many people are probably aware of, but, but of a gray rhino. Um, can you talk a little bit about what exactly a gray rhino is and, and how it kind of relates to a lot of the conversation we've been having so far?
1: Yeah, I mean, a black swan is uh, a word that we used very, very regularly, uh, especially post 2007 and 8, uh, really to justify 2007 and 8 as this kind of crisis that was entirely unforeseeable uh, and that we could only rationalize with the benefit of hindsight. You know, effectively black swans are very rare events that have massive impacts. But in contrast, gray rhinos actually develop right in front of our eyes. We can see, you can see a gray rhino. There's no way you could miss it. And it charges really slowly at you at first, uh, but you only really start to act or realize it when it's right in front of you. Uh, And similar to black swans, they can have massive uh, societal impacts. And I think a lot of the crises uh, that'll define the next decade of geopolitics and macroeconomics aren't even necessarily ones we can't predict. We probably can. It's just that they're developing so slowly. Uh, we there's a fundamental inertia and complacency uh, in how we act about them, and so as you know, a couple of quick examples: the fact that our all the world's electronics and technology are so heavily dependent on what is effectively one or two supply chains of advanced semiconductors in Taiwan. Everyone knows that, and everyone knows that a Chinese invasion is possible. But what really are companies doing to create contingency plans around uh, what would happen when such a geopolitical event takes place? Uh, Or say it's not geopolitical. Uh, You know, where the raw materials come from for these uh, semiconductors, which is largely based out of South Korea and Japan, and where they're uh, processed in Taiwan, both of those regions sit on key tectonic fault lines. So the the risk of an earthquake is very high. I mean, something like a kind of mid-level earthquake, a natural disaster, uh, could entirely disrupt global supply chains in all parts of the world. Uh, and there's very few companies again that have really started thinking about those sorts of risks. Yeah, well, I think it's it's because it's so
0: difficult to think about, and but that's also why it's so crucial to spend some time thinking about them. And you know, as as someone who um, I, I have a story for another day. I was actually one time literally charged by a gray rhino while I was on safari. I can tell you, they do come up on you quick in the last yeah. uh, last fifty feet or so. And so, um, it's it's something which I think there, there's a lot to be aware of. I think the question then becomes. What can bankers and what can fintech professionals do? What do they need to be doing right now that they're not already doing? because when you lay it out in this way, it seems so obvious, right? that there's there needs to be some safeties built in. there needs to be uh, some contingency plans built in. It's not something which you can just ignore. so so what do you do you recommend in the part of actually kind of changing behavior from what you're seeing now in the space?
1: Yeah, I think there's a couple of really big things, uh, and these things might sound very basic, but I I'd argue actually that very few institutions actually really implement them rigorously in the way they need to. But one of these things is uh, treating geopolitical risk like a priority. I think in the kind of regulatory environment we're coming into post-2007-8, and particularly uh, in the fintech space where the regulatory environment is constantly changing, companies have huge compliance teams. Uh, And often all the subparts of risk, including geopolitics, gets uh, relegated to them. And it's something often that C-suite leadership and the board can almost shrug off. Uh, And that, that shouldn't be the case if you're looking at geopolitical risk as a really real operational concern. Because if that's the case, which it is, then... C-suite leadership and boards should should spend time thinking about this as a crucial part of their agenda and should think about how different geopolitical events could potentially be risked, but also opportunities and spaces to expand the business in. Uh, and then the second thing is that uh, there's no shortage of geopolitical risks in the short term. Uh, they're very scary that the media bombards us with constantly and all the time, but often they, they pose the risk of us losing sight of the long-term geopolitical risks, which potentially, and I'd argue definitely... Uh, are even more pivotal in changing society and the kind of global structure and world order as a whole. If you think about uh, where emerging markets are going in the next five to ten years, if you think about the pace of digitization, if you think about democratic blacksliding, you know, you think about how important the influence of big tech companies has become as geopolitical actors of their own. Uh, These are huge things that banks can, again, are are much like, uh, you know, gray rhinos uh, that fintechs should focus on. But again, because they're so far into the long term, often we lose sight of them. And so second thing is to make sure that those uh, are constantly on top of our
0: agenda. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that you can see now that the fintech industry is old enough that you can see companies who've done a good job of this historically do tend to be the ones who come and succeed later on. A lot of the companies that we think of as juggernauts right now in the fintech space um, have, have been just slightly ahead of the curve, both in understanding what's likely to happen, what's likely to drive consumer behavior and also understanding how the geopolitical landscape might potentially shift. And I think we're seeing that uh, obviously regulators play a role in determining in a very literal sense what happens in the FinTech and banking spheres, but also consumers have evolved quite a bit. And I'm not gonna say anybody anticipated exactly what happened in 2020 with the pandemic, but there were a lot of companies who uh, had prior to that in 2018 and 2019 really started to understand we need to be able to meet customers wherever they are. All of a sudden overnight that became crucial And a huge number of companies benefited enormously in 2020 and 2021. Um, and a lot of companies were on the exact other side, where things that they had put in place uh, were not resilient enough to withstand that kind of stress test. And so, I think that's really the crucial piece. Um, now, there's a lot more that we could we could talk about here, and and I would encourage anybody who's interested in, in hearing more from Anas to come to Finnovate Fall, uh, listen to him speak there. Obviously, also check out the demoing companies that we'll have on stage and say see for yourself who among the group could potentially be one of these leaders in the next five or 10 years, could turn into one of those juggernauts. It absolutely can happen. It's happened before. Um, And and for my part, I'll just say, I always love chatting with you. And I'm really interested in hearing what you're going to be talking about. Look forward to catching up with you in New York. It's been
1: a real pleasure, Greg. I look forward to seeing you in New York.